This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Here today as a guest speaker, please welcome Bruce Brown. So you want me just to start talking? Yes. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. Well, so, so I, I hear a lot of composers. I hear a lot of film composers saying, "When I was 17, I went to see a film, and the score was by so and so." And I was just, well, I mean, right then I wanted to be a film composer. I, when I was 16 and four, I never had that experience. Um, I was raised in a distinctly non-showbiz um, family. My family worked for the Salvation Army. My parents did, my grandparents did, my great-grandparents did, my aunts and uncles did. And that organization, aside from those of you who know it as being people who pick up your discards, is essentially a religious organization with a very strong um, component towards social outreach, social work, rehabilitation alcoholism and drug or anything that kind of stuff. And um, they also happen to have a very strong musical program. But the musical program is of an evangelical nature because it's not so much, it's not like a church choir where you try to keep everybody in the mood for the service. It's more a matter of getting the parents and, and making a big noise and, and having a specific purpose. So what I grew up in, the group that I grew up in, family, the fabric that I grew up in, was um, this sort of utilitarian, accessible music that was functional. And uh, because my family uh, had a strong, uh, part, of their, part of their work was in dealing with other people, helping other people, that also became part of, became part of my background as well. So I spent a lot of years, over the last 20, 35 years, being on boards, being president of this, or that's, people say, why do you do that? <laughs> it's genetic. Um, so when I when I was a kid, um, I learned. I started taking piano lessons as a little kid. I had to learn to play a trumpet because that was the selfish kind of thing. I didn't like the trumpet so much, um, and I didn't really think about music as a career. I thought of it as being one of those things that my family did. I had a grandfather who was a who was a composer, a band composer, but everybody in my family was musical. Everybody could play an instrument. Everybody could read. Everybody could sing, everybody could sight sing, everybody could sight read, those kinds of things that you find very uncommon these days. So I grew up with music as being the most natural thing in the world, and it didn't occur to me to try to make money at it. Um, by the time I got to school, by the time I got to USC, I pretty much decided that I was going to become uh, somebody who was going to major in music. And I decided on composition because that was the one thing that I really had. I really didn't know that much. I was a pretty decent pianist, and I had a pretty good background in harmony and theory, but I didn't know so much about composition, so I went in as a composition major with the idea that by the time I got out of school, I would have a better idea of what I wanted to do, and then I could really decide what I wanted to do with my life. Well, as it turned out, I graduated as a composer, and I had <laughs> pretty much decided right then I was going to be a composer. What sort of composer? Driving up, I think it was La Brea, um, one morning, I think I was still in school, trying to figure out what I was going to do after I got out of school. I was listening to the radio, and the radio had some song on it that was getting me all worked up, and I thought, oh, that's really cool. I, I like to do that. I like to do something like that. And the, the, the that thing was, I like to make people feel the way that makes me feel. That song made me feel a little bit. And I thought, what kind of music would make me do that? What kind of music would play do that would be like that? And I thought, well, I could be a songwriter. And I thought, no, that's too short. Too short of form, I like to do something more substantial. And I like to reach a lot of people and, and get a lot of people in there. Oh, movies! You can do that with movies because you can write longer pieces, you can really write, and it reaches a lot of people, and emotionally it's evocative. And I can see if I can get into movies. So eventually I did. I worked at CBS Television for years. And um, at CBS Television, I wasn't hired as a composer, although I did start to write there. But I, while I was at CBS, I worked on staff for 10 years, and I learned a lot about management. I learned a lot about music preparation. I learned a lot about contracts and licensing. 
uh, I learned a lot about tracking because my first job was really as a music selector, uh, cue selector. Um, I learned how music worked. I learned the difference between film music and concert music. Um, and I was able to be there when a lot of really fine composers were hired. CBS at that time uh, was probably at the top of their game. They were doing a lot of uh, TV shows like Hawaii Five-O and Gunsmoke. Um, it was our job in the music department to hire those composers who would, who would play those shows, who would uh, compose those shows. And then CBS at that time decided to go into feature production. So we had feature motion pictures. We were hiring those kinds of composers, people like Jerry Goldsmith and Lawrence Rosenthal and uh, Ben Rosenman and Michelle and Brown, people like that. And these are the guys who would show up in the music department. And because I'd run upstairs to the library and look at their scores and try to figure out what they had done and see all the stuff and go to the sessions as much as I could to look at their scores and, and see how all that stuff was put together. It was really a great learning experience. Um, but I didn't want to be a uh, I didn't want to be a music director. That was pretty much where my career was going. Um, I didn't want to be a director of the music department, so I left and became freelance. And by that time, uh, I had enough credits that some people would become aware of what I'd done. I started working with Universal, um, doing Quincy, uh, and Buck Rogers, and as a composer. But now it's entirely composer. And uh, the fear factor really set in because up to this point, I've been earning a salary. Now I was just going from week to week, show to show, trying to figure out whether I could write or not. And I would say that most of what I've learned as a composer, most of the technique that I gained as a composer was in those years working on television. Because the difference between television then, one difference between television then and the difference between television now is that we always had live musicians. At CBS we had 18 musicians. That was always our lecture. It didn't matter who came to do the show on a TV show, we would work with 18 musicians. It didn't matter which 18 you chose. If you wanted to have 18 oboes, God bless you. You could do anything you wanted. In fact, Bernard Irvin came to do a, a TV show, did a, a Western. And his orchestra of 18 were typical Bernard Irvin, six contrabasses, six bass clarinets, and six bassoons. He said, the highest note is middle C. <laughs> it was the low notes that were the problem. <laughs> because Bernard Irvin liked to write in, in uh, triads. So he had six basses playing triads, two on the part, and the country bassoons and, and the credits on it. And the score sounded like Because <laughs> he wasn't a great melodist, not that it would have mattered in that score. And I remember, I, I learned a few things on that score. He was up conducting, he didn't use clicks. And Ward Stevens, who was the head of our department, and a really good composer, was sitting next to me in the booth. And he was laughing at that me because they would start the they would start the um, the cue and start the screamers and Herman would get the downbeat. Everybody started to play, and then when the final screamer came, he's still conducting. It wasn't done, so they rack it up again and start the cue. And then the cue would finish, or rather, the, the final screamer would come. He's still conducting, and Ward starts to laugh. He says, "Look at that! He, says, he can't even conduct his own music." So he gets on the on the uh, the talk back and he says, "Hey Benny, he says, why don't you come in and listen to?" Listen to the mix. You know, get the mix the way you like. Let me conduct a few for you. And Herman stood there. Herman stood and slowly looked towards the booth. And he said, oh, "Are you concerned because I'm not hitting the last streamer?" He said, "It doesn't matter. It's all going to work anyway." <laughs> so I asked a couple of months later. I asked the executive producer of that show. I said, "What did you think of that Bernard Herman score?" He said, "That was the best score we had all year." I said, "Really?" Yeah, he said, you know, it was a Jack the Ripper story. It was really dark and really menacing and really creepy. He says, that music, that music was just great. I've thought about that a lot since then. I thought, oh, it doesn't matter. It's all going to work anyway. So it's a very different mindset than clicks. You know, clicks and digital delays and samples and loops and like that. So, so I had opportunities of doing things like that. I remember Jerry Goldsmith came to do a, a television movie. These were movies, motion pictures for television. Not TV movies, these were motion pictures for television. Um, because it was all brand new. So we were still hiring people like Quincy Jones and Jerry and, and people like that. And um, the copyist at that time was, uh, was Jerry Hill, who later went on to UCBS become a composer in his own right, writing, writing the themes to Dallas and Knott's Landing and how the rest was going on. So Jerry and I really go over these scores together. And this particular score of, of, of Jerry Goldsmith was really bizarre. 
It was all strings, one electric flute. See, I can remember all the works. One electric flute, two keyboards, one with a Clark Spangler who was doing the uh, CS something, you know, and Artie, I think, was playing piano. Um, and a percussionist with Shelly Mann. That was basically strange. And on the score, there were no notes on maybe half the scores, maybe two thirds of the score. There were no notes. There were just line drawings on the string parts, just like you take a protractor. Just and I said to to Jerry Elmo, I said, "What is this? What is this supposed to be?" And Jerry said, "I have no idea. I have no idea. There are no no notes. I have no idea." And basically, what it was was that Jerry had been Goldsmith had been studying Penderecki and. and new notation and new sounds, and it figured out how to work that into this dramatic score that he had. He had, um, in this group, because he had Shelley Mann and he had Ray Brown as, as one of his bass players, and he had the electric flute, he had a rhythm section. And he had, he had Hardy Kane playing the piano, so he had a rhythm section. Uh, it, was a, it was a show about a fraternity that had many years, you know, hundreds of years of history behind it. So he had sort of a Baroque quality and a theme uh, but it was a contemporary show, that, so that was sort of a jazz element, and then he had this very bizarre stuff that was going on in the show, which was all this really contemporary music. And he would, and he would stand there and he would handle out, hand out pencils to him. He said, okay, this is the Colonial section, so he'd hand out boxes of pencils. And then everybody would read these you know, scribbles, and they would play that. And then you look at it on the screen, you go, wow. <laughs> it, was, it, was really, it was really exciting. It was a very exciting time for me to be a composer. Exciting time for him to be a composer. So when I got out of that and I started going on my own, one of the things I decided was that as much as possible, if I were working on a series, if I were on a couple of series, um, Quincy, Dallas, Pablo West was one, that every episode I would change my orchestra, I would change the combination. That way, I could never write the same thing twice. And it was a particular problem on Dallas, because on that show, every episode was pretty much like the one before and after. It was a lot of fun, but it was always some line like, you're such a slut, Suella. <laughs> so if I changed my orchestra around, I could always you know, write it differently, depending on the demands of the show. So gradually, I became a pretty good orchestrator. I got to understand the orchestra, and I got a chance to be able to play with film, and be able to play with timings, and, and all that stuff. So by the time I got into movies, um, I had pretty much a, a solid technique. As a, as a film um, How did that transition happen from television to movies? Well, my agent was, um, at the time, was um, Alvard. And he knew a guy who used to work for Blake Edwards, who was a producer. And um, so this guy, Ken Wells, called, called Al and said, I'm working on a movie for Billy Graham, the evangelist. So I need a composer. He's somebody who understands that. And Al says, I've got the right guy for you. <laughs> so he got me, because I did understand that stuff. And so I worked with, with, um, with these people on the, on the first movie. Because I now had a movie credit, not that it was a big movie credit, God knows. Um, Harry Loyevsky over at uh, MGM um, had me working over there. He, he had Al Silvestri working on I was working on Chips, and I was working on Al Western's one, and needed a composer on a, on a movie that didn't have a huge music budget. So he couldn't hire Jerry Goldsmith, and he needed to hire somebody who would work cheap. So he hired me. So that was my second movie, because I already had a movie credit. And then the next movie was Silverado, which had little to do with the other two movies, except that I at least had a little bit of a background. But I, with Silverado, I basically had a big background in Westerns, because I had done Hello Westerns one, the blue and the gray, and some of that Americana stuff. For TV. It was all TV, and it was a long shot. And I think the reason I got the job on Silverado, in fact, I know the reason I got the job on Silverado, was because I read the script. I liked the script. It was a very thick, very dense, very dense script, very specific. And I would have a meeting with the director, Larry Caston, his editor, um, and, and his brother, the co writer. Uh, and what should have been a 20-minute meeting turned out to be about an hour and a half because we just hit it off. I understood this movie, I think, pretty much the way he understood it. He liked what I said, I liked what he said, we got on great. And uh, he still had other people to talk to. I know that he was still interviewing other people, but he, when he called me, he said, I'm going to 
So it's kind of a chance. I'm going to take a chance on this. But I've, I've got a good feeling about this. I've, I've done this before and it's worked out well. So it worked out a little well. Yeah. Which, which books I think in my experience that the big part of the film is understanding the director. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell my students it's not, you don't get hired for music. You don't get hired to put music into a film. Um, that's why they have the commissions. They hire you to help tell the story. So if you can convince the director that you're telling the story, that you understand it in terms of story. Um, like I've never had a director say to me, those are beautiful flute voices. I really like the way you brought the flute down right with the clarinet and God, that's, that, that was really a remarkable sound. I've never heard that. I've heard, that works. <laughs> or I've heard, why, why is this making me nervous? Why is it making me, this, this music's making me nervous. It shouldn't be making me nervous. Why is it making me, that part right there, I don't like that part with the, you know, the oboes. <laughs> so you don't care about that part. All you care about is the nervous. Okay, I think I can change. Or, you know, and it's amazing the kind of techniques you get. Like I remember, I was working on a movie. We were having a great relationship. It was a really nice director. It was a comedy. It was even partly funny. Um, we were having a, you know, we were having a good time. The, Scoring was going great. And at one point, he walked up to me and he said, that's not what you said you were going to do. And I said, really? Uh, what did I say? He said, you said that was going to be a jazz cue. Oh, I don't remember why I say that. Well, because the piece before that was a jazz thing and you were going to do blah, blah, blah. And then, he, then I remember the conversation. I said, oh, yeah. No, I really didn't do that. Well, what are we going to do? I said, um, go away. Give me 15 minutes. So I looked around, I counted heads, and a keyboard player, I had a guitarist, I had a bass player, I had a sax player. No, I had a trumpet player, so I had a trumpet player. Okay, I can do this. And I looked at now I had a harmonic score, so I moved it around. And 15 minutes later, we had a jazz piece. And we, I, you know, you get funny things the way you split hairs. Um, I was working on another movie, again, where it was going great, the director and I got along great. And there was this big love-making scene. It was, you know, fairly graphic, it was in there, and, and so I did this big romantic cue and, and it was, I thought it was pretty cool, you know. And uh, so after about four days of, of working, the director said, tomorrow morning I'm going to be a little bit late. So I said, no problem, I'll just play whatever we did. Well, that morning that he was gone was the morning I was going to do that cue, this big romantic cue. So I did it and I thought it was sensational. I thought, oh man, am I a genius? This is so so I was very high, and I'm, I'm not usually one to be high on what I do, but this one I, I thought I really knew. So the director came with his wife, and they stood there, and they looked at the picture, and I'm watching them, and I'm looking at what I did. And it was all over, he turned and he said, well, Bruce, he said, so, that's really, that's really very romantic. I said, yeah. He says, unfortunately, the scene's not about romance, it's about sex. What's the difference? <laughs> Sex is faster. <laughs> so I changed that cue too. You know, it's amazing because when the director says something to you that has nothing at all to do with music, has nothing at all to do even whether you did a good job or a bad job in terms of music, just talks to you about their story. This isn't about romance. This is about sex. This is a guy's fantasy. This is blah, 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 blah. Oh, oh, right. I missed it. That's right. I took the story and, and made it too soft. I needed you know, to change that. And to get that kind of a, um, to get those kind of bullets in your holster, you know, that's it's kind of an interesting thing. So when I teach, like I teach now at SC and at UCLA, if I'm teaching film music, it's one of the things I try to get across that you need to have as many musical techniques as possible. You need to have as wide a range as possible. Because in film music, you're going to be asked to do everything you know, and then you're going to be empty. Because in film music, you're always learning new things. You, you have to write. You have to write Hungarian music, you have to write Chinese music, you have to write jazz, you have to write big band, you have to write like Mozart, you have to write small groups, big groups, you have to write for all sorts of combinations. And if you don't, if you don't have those techniques, you're going to be lacking something. You, know, you can't walk in and say, well, I write really good tunes. That's nice. That's nice. In fact, I wish there were more people who wrote really good tunes, but that's not a month that's going to carry all the way through. So. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so after Silverado, you had some other significant films that kind of put you on the map in the digital world, like The Young Shepherd Wars, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, after... Was that like, was that like one wrecking point, or was that one in many, what do you think? No, that was, um, Silverado, Silverado was always the, people always say, oh, you got to with Silverado. When I was working on Silverado, the director wanted to hear what I was doing, which is pretty funny, because he really wasn't much of a musician, and we didn't have synth stuff yet. So I said, well, yeah, go over to my house, I'll play you what I've got. So I sat on the piano and played them all the cues. This is where they shake hands, and this is where the backlash shows up. And but anyway, as he was sitting there, he noticed a script on my desk, which was a, uh, an Amblin script. And he said, what are you doing with an Amblin script? And I said, I don't know, just sent this to me. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it was young Sherlock Holmes. Well, Larry Kasdan, the director of Silverado, had been the writer to The Empire Strikes Back, Jedi Return, and to the, I think the first Indiana Jones movie. So he had a good relationship with them. So after the movie was done, after Silverado was done, um, I was pretty tired, but I got a call to look at this other movie, Young Sherlock Holmes, that I read the script on. And um, had lunch with the, um, with the director, Barry Levinson. And Barry didn't really know me, and I really didn't know Barry. I, I knew his previous movie had been the natural, um, and I think I had seen the one before that, uh, the one that took place in Baltimore. Um, so, you know, he really didn't know me. He was also sort of very taking the chance. We were talking, talking, talking. I could see that he was trying to trying to be convinced. And finally I said, well, why don't you talk to Larry Caston? He says, why don't you talk to Larry? So I knew that that was already at work. And for whatever reason, they chose me, and that became it. And Actually, it was a better movie for me than Silverado in some ways, because Silverado was a very white hat, black hat kind of movie. It was very strongly themed with good guys, bad guys. The themes were about family and friendship, uh, right and wrong, and, and it was a, it was truly a classical western because he was trying to recreate the genre that had pretty much died. Whereas Young Sherlock Holmes was this very, um, very rich, uh, extremely well-made movie about this um, kid who lived in his head, basically. And so all the counterpoint and all the colors and all the orchestral things that I couldn't use in Silverado all found their way in the young Sherlock Holmes. And uh, that was that. After that, I think it was The Boy Who Fly. Um, and then I, I can't remember all the things that happened after that. I remember Tombstone happened. Tombstone, I remember when I went to see Tombstone, uh, they had half of a penny, and they attempted with Silverado which is really a bad choice, because Tombstone is a very dark, overly melodramatic movie, where even the good guys are bad guys. Whereas Silverado's, I don't know, I was a good guy. Even, I mean, like, Silverado, at that time, um, all the actors in Silverado were unknown. Kevin Costner, this was his first movie. Kevin Klein was a little well-known. Um, the best-known actor in Silverado when I came out was a guy from Monty Python. Johnny, John Cleese played the sheriff, which probably didn't say an awful lot for the movie at that time, but that was, you know, that was what it was. Um, so it was, you know, it was very straight ahead. Tombstone was completely the opposite. And to have Silverado in that movie just made Tombstone look really stupid. And I remember the director came out after we looked at it and he says, oh, what do you think about the music I've got? I said, oh, I love your music. I hate it in this movie. It just doesn't, doesn't fit this movie at all. And it really put me off doing the movie until I could take the temp track away from the movie and just look at the movie by itself and I realized there was stuff in it. I liked all the melodrama and I liked being over the top. And I'll have to say, in for whatever reason, Silverado, Tombstone, Boy Could Fly, uh, Young Sherlock Holmes, all these early movies, nobody nobody really asked me what I was doing. They asked me to play a theme for them. Larry came over didn't hear what I was doing, but he didn't know I, he couldn't tell from the piano. So nobody really got nobody asked me for a baka. Nobody asked to hear an example of what I was doing for this scene and that scene. I just wrote unconstrained. And I have to say, it worked out better that way. When people weren't sitting on top of me saying, well, like this, do that. Once, once we got into mock-ups, everything got to be much more formal um, and much more careful. A couple of years ago, several years ago, Armin Steiner and I were remixing the final CD to Silverado. So I had my scores and I was looking at it. And I hadn't, heard the score for a long time, so I was really amused to see what I'd written. Oh, that's kind of cute. Oh, I like that. That was pretty neat. And then it hit me. If I were to write Silverado today, I wouldn't have written that, because I couldn't do the mock-up song. Right. 
because you mentioned earlier that when in his VS days about the terrible score where he was writing just aleatory stuff, which probably he did not have to mark up. So no, which is something well, how could you? Yeah, you couldn't. So so there's a there's a whole mass of well, I mean even Bernard Herman, how are you gonna mark up a score like that with bases and, and just something like mud? So there was a lot of trust in that time. There's a lot of expectation, there's a lot of anxiety. Uh, and for the most part, um, Actually, Rolf and Mike could talk this, but it was they went on more recordings than I did. But I think for the most part, it worked out pretty well. We didn't have scores being tossed out right and left. So how did that affect you? How did, did you at some point then start to adapt to that technology, embrace yeah. it, or reject it, or find out mockups, or how did you? No, I used to do my own mockups. I, I, mean, I, I can do mockups. I can do them well enough to be able to play for somebody. Right. Um, for one thing, the mockup, I can get it to a certain point of what I want them to hear and what I don't want them to hear. Yeah. So if they can get the, the overall concept, I, and if I can get by that, then I can pretty much do what I want to do. Um, but I think at one point, I remember I was working on a thing a few years ago, an HBO thing. I had 12 people in my room looking at my mock-up. One of them was the director, one of them was the executive producer who didn't want to have any part of the process. He actually sat in the corner of the room singing Rodgers and Hammerstein songs to himself. Um, there was an executive from HBO. We had a music supervisor. We had my music editor. So those are what five people who I knew who they were. Right. The other seven people I had no idea who they were. But they were all sitting there, all listening to my mock-ups, and then the director and the, and the exec from HBO would argue about how the cue went. Didn't like this, didn't like that. And then the director didn't like, he said, all the cues sound alike. I said, yeah, they all come from the same stuff. <laughs> they are all alike, they all come from the same box. I mean, it was really, it was really difficult. The session ended up being okay. It turned out to be a live session. It was fine. But I, it's just become more difficult. And I know now, I, I haven't, done this stuff for a while. Now it's harder because the mock-up becomes the score. You see a lot of scores and you think, oh, that's, okay, that's what they began with, that's what they ended with. It's hard. It is hard, yeah. Um, and, but the young Sherlock Holmes uh, score just came out on the end of it. Yeah, it just finally came out after years of, of trying to get the rights to it. And finally got the score out to young Sherlock Holmes. And that's been a score that um, has been a particular favorite to a lot of people. It plays really well in Spain, <laughs> but it's, I'm, I'm happy to have it out. I'm happy to have most, most of the things out. And nowadays, when, when you write, do you start out um, with pencil on paper or this notation software and then bring it over to the sequence world, or when do you start with writing this? I'm still, no, I'm still, it, it depends. I'm essentially a, a pencil and paper guy. Yeah. If I write a concert piece, I'll start with pencil and paper. A few times I've done some TV jobs, which were going to end up as being synth jobs, in which case I wouldn't bother with pencil and paper. I just, I might write out a theme. Right. Um, and if I needed live musicians, I'd certainly write out whatever that was, but very often I'll just improvise the score in and just make it go the way I do it. And I would do it basically myself. And if I needed that, that synthesis to be improved, to be actually used in the score, then I would have somebody come in and do the next line. All the stuff that I'm not capable of doing. And frankly, they'll come Do you use any notation software? Yeah, I used to do it. I'm pretty good at Sibelius. I'm good enough to be cranky if it doesn't do well. <laughs> and uh, good enough to know that I'm sorry I went to System 7, Tuesday and 6. But um, yeah, I use Sibelius. And I use Performer when I do my sequencing. And I use them, even if I'm doing a concert piece, I use them both. Like after I'm working on the pencil, um, I'll put it into Sibelius so that I can see it. Yeah. And, um, and even though the performance is kind of clunky, it gives me a sense of timing. If I want to hear it better, I'll put it in, I'll sequence it. And that'll give, me, that'll give me a little bit better sense of timing. But I have to be really careful not to rely on anything I listen to. Because as I listen to the music that came from the years when I didn't have that, the time just fine. So, and I realize I have the ability, I don't care what it is, have the ability to be able to tell what the piece is by looking at it and being able to decide you know, where you need to move and where you move to. You uh, briefly touched on writing concept music. Um, I know that you've written for Gloria Chang, please. Um, is that something that you do more nowadays? Than, than... No, I always did. Um, writing, writing film music gives you, at least it gave me, a, a very big technique. Yeah. It was a very specific technique. And it was a technique uh, geared towards being there at a given moment. It was music on demand, you're, you're writing music um, for a specific situation, 
uh, detailed by a specific person telling you this, not that kind of stuff. But you still get a big technique, and you learn to do things that you would never probably learn to do in concert music. Uh, particularly like uh, working on animation. In animation, or I was working on um, Tiny Toons, which was supposed to be in the style of Carl Stalling. Well, it was, sort of, except that if you look at those old Warner Brothers cartoons and compare them to the new cartoons, the timing is very different. The, the stuff in, in Stalling's day was very leisurely compared to the stuff that we were doing on Tiny Toons. So we were making very fast transitions. You need to go from this to this without a beat and a half. And learning how to do that and still making it sound reasonably musical was something I learned. When you're writing a concert piece, you need the technique. But the thing that you don't have, have uh, helping you is the form. When you're working on a movie or on a TV show, they pretty much tell you when you're going to come to the double bar. They pretty much tell you when you're going to change color or when you have to change the feeling or change the mood or when you've used the theme enough. When you're working on a concert piece, that's all you. I tell people that working in film is to constantly writing accompaniment. The main voice is the film. Whatever the film is, you're always writing accompaniment. Sometimes the accompaniment is very, um, gives the impression that it's very important. And other times it gives the impression it's not very important, but whatever it is, it's always accompaniment. In, in concert music, there is no screen, there's no pretty girl, there's no great looking guy to help you out, no horses to move from left to right, there's just the music. So you have to figure out all that stuff yourself and be able to use that technique that you have in service of that musical idea. And frankly, you have to be careful that your technique doesn't override your ideas, because frankly, if you don't have ideas, your technique doesn't really mean too much. So I, I found that in all the years when I was doing television and film, that working on concert music helped me in areas that film couldn't access. At the same time, for all the things that I was picking up in film, I could use in concert music. So to write for arcane groups or, or odd combinations, that wasn't a problem because I was looking, I was looking at that on film and TV. Um, I've always found that one, one was good for the other. So in this essence, a film composer, being a film composer, composer makes you a better concert composer and vice versa? No, not necessarily. I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of composers who don't understand film at all. Um, I can think of two who, two who are really fine composers who understand film really well. One's John Crillion and the other one is Aaron Copeland. They both, I mean, they, they understand film, they understand the timings, they understand the mechanics, they understand the principle of work for art, they understand the whole thing. Um, a lot of classic composers, when they get to film, have too much music. And they, they will work about form, or they'll think about development and things, and then they, they don't quite get it. Um, a lot of film composers don't get concert music. They think that, that film music, because you can listen to a lot of film music on its own, that that's the same thing as concert music. Well, it's really not, you know, because you always have the film. Like, I, I sometimes wonder if Silverado, if the music from Silverado had somehow been fashioned on its own, what would that have meant to anybody? And the answer is probably not very much. Because you think of the film, you still think of the film. Tombstone, people love the music of Tombstone. It's the movie. You think of the movie that's locked in the movie. Now, that, that movie, without that music, would definitely be another movie. So it's, it's not a way of, of demeaning what I did. It's just that they're really, really tied together. If you listen to the piano pieces that Gloria played, that she recorded the other day, those are just piano pieces, you know, and the way Gloria plays and the way I play them or somebody else is going to play them might determine the little the way you take that, that performance. And that's, which is another issue of film music. In film music, the music was meant to be performed exactly like that. It was meant to be heard exactly like that. In a concert piece, you might take it slower, you might take it faster, you might change the transition, you might change the form, you might find a better way of getting at something. Um, you find concert uh, symphonic conductors playing Brahms Symphony 50, 60 times, 200 times in their career, always trying to find a different way of being able to get to it. In film music, it goes like that. That's it. And if it didn't go like that, you're too late, you're too early, or you're too loud, or you're too soft, or you're not romantic, or you're too sexy, or whatever it is. I've at times found this very confusing, particularly if I went through long stretches where I wasn't being called. I wasn't, wasn't working like, oh, you're not working. And I thought, well, we have a thing is, if I identify myself as being strictly a film composer, then I'm screwed because there are times when everybody doesn't work. If I think of myself as being a concert composer, I'm sort of screwed too because there are times I have to get up to do a film. If I think of myself as a composer, 
who writes all sorts of music in different media, different genres, who sometimes does film and sometimes does concert music, or sometimes does an arrangement, or sometimes does an occasional piece for God knows what, but as, as a composer, then I can be satisfied with what I do. And so as long as I think of myself as a composer, I'm, I'm fine. I can and be happy with myself or not. And I think also that's something that Betty Herman, I've been told Betty Herman said, you're not a film composer, you're a composer who happens to write music and films. I think you could say that a bunch of composers. I think, I think John Williams essentially thinks that. I think Jerry thought that. Yeah. Um, Lenny Rosenthal, I know, thought that. Uh, Larry Rosenthal, you know, Larry Rosenthal is He's 84, 85 years old. He's working on an opera. And it's not an easy one. He's working on Gilgamesh. Well, that's hopeful, you know? <laughs> I don't think he's finished with the second act yet, but I mean, he's, he's working on it. He says, I work on it every day. I find out how to keep doing that. So these guys are really composers. If they have film or not, they don't have film. They're really good film composers. But a lot of always was doing concerts. I mean, a, lot of, a lot of people do it. To put that to the side, as a songwriter, um, my job on that film, first of all, I got that film. I was supposed to do the score on the film. I got that film in a typical Hollywood way because I knew somebody, not that I was looking for it. The guy who was the producer that Al Bart found on that Billy Graham movie was exactly. doing another faith-based movie. So he said, would you work on this? And I sure, I'll do it. Because uh, you never turn down your friends, right? So I was supposed to do the score. And in this movie, which is basically an historical drama, it's really not too much of a religious film. Um, it was a story about, a, about an immigrant family in the 18th century, around 1750, during the French and Indian Wars, who moved to this country, homestead, and then all this stuff happens. Well, they're out in the middle of nowhere, and they're in a new country, um, and they get nervous, so there's a scene where the mother sings this old hymn of comfort. In fact, there actually is, there actually is a hymn with that name, the hymn in it. So I mean, I looked at the hymn because I thought if we could use that hymn, that would be great. But it was—it's kind of a stodgy Lutheran thing, you know, with not as memorable as some of the other ones. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just write another hymn. So the job was, as a as a film composer, as a composer, write a song in a style of eighteenth-century hymn that can be memorable enough to be used throughout the film as a dramatic piece, can be used without harmony. No one's going to get up and dance on the tables. There's not going to be any production. No guitar is going to play. It's just going to be the melody. It has to be very straightforward and has to tell us this story inside the summer story. So I wrote a um, I wrote a tune fashioned it on formally uh, fashioned on Amazing Grace, which was almost, right around the same time. It has twelve bars. It has three phrases. Um, it's a pentatonic tune. It can be harmonized simply different ways because it's just a harmonic, just a pentatonic tune. And then I called my um, my friend, Dennis Spiegel, who writes the best Christian hymns of any guy I know, um, if he would do the words. Dennis had also worked on the Billy Graham film. And um, so by the time we were done, we had a, we had a song. And then because of some, some scheduling problem, uh, I ended up not being able to do the film. And fortunately, they got um, Bill Ross. Well, you know, Bill's good at that stuff, but he's also really good at doing songs. And, so by, our song had been used all the way through the film, was a very heavy story point, so they decided to start the end credits with a version of the song. They went to Bill, can you arrange this? Yes. Who shall we have sing it? They, they found this lady, um, Johnny Erickson, who I knew about, I, I didn't know her, who's very, very well known in that crowd. She's a spectacular person, paraplegic, who's extraordinarily talented. Uh, I mean, she, she's just, she's a wonderful woman can also sing. But because she's paraplegic, she doesn't sing easily. And if you look at the video from singing, if you look it up on YouTube, there's a spot where you'll actually see her husband pressing down on her, trying to get air out of the diaphragm because she doesn't have the strength to get to the high notes. So she couldn't really just stand and sing. She can't stand. She couldn't sit and sing the song either. But she did a terrific performance. And um, when they first started to show the movie, I found that when people were coming out after the theater, they were saying, that song, can we get that song? Can we get that song? Can my church sing it? Can my choir get to it? Can I get a piano version of something? So I knew that the song was lasting yeah. Um And as a as a composer of background scores, that was that was nice. I mean, I, I wish that I'd had more opportunity over the years to write songs. Yeah, a lot of us. Um, John's written songs. Jerry's written. Jerry wrote great themes. Um, he could he could write songs. A lot of us could write songs. Mancini did write songs. 
right now it's a it's a two-pronged business. You write the score and somebody else comes in and writes the songs. Um, when I as I meet songwriters, like guys like Jimmy Webb or, or um, uh, almost anybody, uh, yeah, Arthur Hamilton, maybe people like this who, who had a career writing lots of different songs, um, you, you realize that there's so much richness in it and so much variation. Um, it's like every every few months or every couple of years, I find a new song that Gershwin's wrote. It didn't sound like a Gershwin song. I didn't know they wrote that. Or a song that Richard Rodgers wrote, or Jerome Kern or somebody. I didn't know he wrote that. I didn't know he wrote that. There's just this richness and wealth in songwriting. But I chose what I chose, and I'm not sorry for it. So. Thank you so much for sharing. And, um, any questions from the audience for Bruce? Yes, I um, I just want to say, uh, that is a wonderful song, and it, what happened to it is terrible. That was hypocritical to the maximum. But I do have a, a question about it. The, uh, it is a pentatonic melody. I associate that with folk hymns. Um, I don't know if it is. It's not really, I mean, it's not a, I don't think, if you look back in the 18th century German hymnals, you would find too many pentatonic tunes. Um, I mean, Martin Luther had already had uh, a mighty fortress, and it was, the style was pretty much, pretty much done. But it was, um, it was one of those things you you do to make your peace with the fact that it's a, it's a film going to be seen essentially by Americans, and one that you hope might actually have a life. Um, I had to add a bridge later. When Bill was doing the arrangement, he called me and said, you need a bridge to make it into a song, so I didn't even have that. So I, Putting a little bit of bridge. That part is not pentatonic. Right. But I, but I always hoped that if, if it were really successful, it would get printed in church hymnals. And then I would feel that that was really successful because then everybody would buy the fact that it was a song. There was a uh, religious song. The funny thing was, you know, Dennis is Jewish. Dennis is not. Dennis is a Christian. And I said to him um, the day we were we got nominated, I looked at those lyrics. I said, you know, you're, you're pretty clever. Um, it's really. A pretty much an ecumenical song. He said, yeah, except for one line. Um, I said, what's that? He said, I know I will be saved. He says, that, that, that would appear in the Jewish song. I said, well, actually, it comes from Isaiah. The Lord's arm is not so short that he cannot save. Show me that verse. Show me that verse, he said. So, so we have an ecumenical song. We, we've had comments from it, um, obviously, by um, um, evangelical Christians. We've had We've had wonderful comments by Jews. We even had a couple of comments by Buddhists, you know. So if that thing showed up in a hymnal somewhere, it's basically just a movie song. You know, it's like Laura, but we only have five notes. We don't have fancy chords. <laughs> I'm particularly interested in the bridge because it's different from the rest of the song. As you pointed out, it's not pentatonic. It's more contemporary. It's probably my favorite part of the song. It's very clever. And, uh, but it, it seems like either an intentional departure or just that's where we to go. I'm curious how it wound up there. You, you know, this is the same old story all the time. I had to get it done, so I just sat down and did it. You know, and uh, Bill said, you know, we need a we need a bridge. Can you get it to me tonight? And I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, so I did the bridge, and I made a little mock-up, and I sent it to Dennis, and he put the words, and we agreed that that was what we wanted to say, and sent it out to Bill. I mean, it was just because we had to get it done. And it, it kind of hurt me that it wasn't pentatonic, but it's a good bridge. It's a good well. I'm glad that's a good bridge. I'm glad it's a good bridge. I'm glad it worked out well because I, I like the bridge and, and the way she sings. I like the way she sings it. You know, it comes off really well. Um, you know, pentatonic tunes. It's one of the things about about writing. There are so many really stunningly beautiful pentatonic tunes, and to sit down and write one is really hard. And and mine is not. I mean. I know it's my music, but I would not call mine a stunningly beautiful pentatonic tune compared to the ones that I'm thinking about. But even with, a, with that limit of just five notes to work with, people come up with the most amazing things. So that, you know, that's something to share. But I'm glad you like the bridge. I like the bridge. I have a question about the vocal. Um, I listen to it really carefully. This is an A-A-B-A type song. Right. The first A, her voice is beautiful, if that's her. That's her. And the second A, it's so different that it makes you wonder, is this the same person singing? 
No, it, it's her. As I said, she's a paraplegic and singing is very hard. In fact, uh, I was at some event with her a couple months ago. It was a red carpet thing, and she would say to people, I'm not really a singer. I'm not really a singer. And I said, yeah, I am. To really sing a song. But she really is a singer, and she sings okay. They obviously had to do it in pieces because she couldn't sing the song from beginning to end. And uh, she just doesn't have the she just doesn't have the physical power. And she's really, if you see her, it's amazing. She does any at all. I mean, she um, she face paints. You know, she, she has no use of her arms, so she sticks a brush in her mouth. She's pretty good at it. She writes. She speaks. Um, but if you if you met her, she's in a wheelchair. She's strapped to the wheelchair. I guess because of some control problem. She manipulates the controls of the wheelchair to move this way and that. She's very sparky. She's lovely personality. You'd think that she was just you know. The, had the easiest life in the world. She has a really difficult life, really difficult life. And her husband is extraordinary in the way that he, the way that he takes care of her. And they've been married for something like 30 years. I mean, she, I said to somebody the other day, I think some sort of interview, that the Oscars this year, their theme was heroes in the movie. She's a hero. She's a real hero. If she'd been able to have her wheelchair down the red, red carpet, that would have been, that's a real hero. Because her life was, was extraordinary. So I was really happy. It was just dumb luck to have Bill Ross do the arrangement and have Johnny sing it. Um, I think her, a lot of people get confused. They think that she wrote the song. It's okay with me. You know that the song actually um, hit the Billboard charts? I mean, it actually, it actually did well for a while. I mean, it was just downloads. It's not, you can't find it on an album. You can download it for 99 cents on Amazon or something like that. Uh, it's basically her performance and whatever they're getting out of the whatever they're getting out of the words and the tune. The movie's okay. I wouldn't rush to go see it, but it'll probably have a really good opening weekend because of all this stuff. I know a lot of people will come in contact with that song. But you know, essentially it's a movie, it's a movie story, right? It's a movie composer story. Because you're there saying, what kind of a song do I have to write for this and how can I sell this given the drama and the limits of the, of the uh, film? And that's what we did. So I'm glad that she sang it. I'm glad you guys liked the bridge. Because I like the bridge. That's okay. yeah. We actually got it into print, so it's nice. But it's a bad news for that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bad so. Any more? My church choir can sing it. In fact, I even got a brass band version of it. Uh, a guy I know in England who's actually a very, he's a very big name in British brass bands, I decided to do an arrangement of it. And he got the Black Dyke band to play it. And it sounds great. I, I sent a copy to Dennis. And he said he broke out the tears. It's, I mean, you hear all this rich euphony play this tune. It's, it's pretty good. Sounds pretty cool. I'm famous. Yes, you are. The song will be famous. Are there any more questions? Yes, Sarah. I don't remember which one. Sarah mentioned that she's been to a performance of uh, Bruce's channel piece. And it was written for Andrew Schulman. Now, I, I've known Andrew for years, and I know I know how he plays. Um, no two performers play the same instrument the same way. But I knew how Andrew played. In that, I knew how he phrased, and I knew how he liked to do it. So when I'm writing, when I was writing a piece, I could write it with Andrew in mind. If I were just to write a cello piece, it would be perhaps a little more generic, but knowing that it was being tailor-made for this person, that's one of the advantages of being a before. So, thank you for saying that. Yes. I want to say that when my wife and I go to the movies and the opening credits come up with their names on there, I know that even if I don't like the movie, I can close my eyes and just listen to the music. Well, thank you. It must have been a while ago, but thank you. That's <laughs> <laughs> Has it been a long time since you started? Yeah, I haven't. I haven't done a major feature for about, oh, I guess, about 15 years, 14, 15 years. But I have the same response as people have, as Aaron Copeland had. People said, somebody asked, "Why don't you score more movies?" He says, "Nobody asked." Um, I suppose I would if I got asked. Um, given it would be the kind of movie that I would feel comfortable scoring. Um, music has changed so much, and. Um, Big comment I was talking about that earlier. Scoring has changed so much that um, 
it's a very different world. I mean, it's, it's funny, I said this to Randy Newman years ago. I said, I said, yeah, I don't want to appear overly stupid here or naive, but I said, have you noticed how much music has changed in the last few years? He looked at me and says, hell, this is in the mid-50s, all the chords disappeared. Meaning, when rock and roll came in, we just had three chords. So music has always been changing. I, the changes in music now, I think, are primarily due to technology. Um, technology has changed the way movies are made. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen a strong pole or a piece of film. We don't figure out clicks the way we used to. Timing is done differently, but cinematographers do it differently, directors do it differently, um, the editors, I mean, everything is being done differently. And so a lot of the demands of technology have, have made it possible for a certain kind of music to make itself known. Right. Thank, thank you for the compliment. Thank you so much, Bruce. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast. Mm -hmm.